Our first reading is Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. Love the Lord your God. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord the God of your fathers promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The next reading is Matthew 28, page 706. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Uh, good evening and welcome, especially if uh, you're new or passing through. It's great to be uh, amongst you this evening and great to have the opportunity to look at the word together. Uh, psalm 29 is, um, is not a psalm we're looking at tonight, but it's a great psalm. Uh, and it's a psalm that starts with uh, a call to worship God and then it moves on to talk about uh, and reflect on God's voice and God's powerful voice and what God's voice can do. Uh, it talks about uh, how God's voice thunders and it's powerful and it's majestic, how, how it's like lightning. Um, it, can, it, it shakes deserts and even kind of strips the bark from trees and twists oaks. Um, the conclusion of it all, uh, after you hear the powerful word of God, you cry glory. Uh, all glory to God. Uh, my hope this evening is that we, as we sit underneath God's word and we reflect on him and his character is that we are led to give him glory. Uh, why don't we pray that that is where we'll go this evening. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you uh, that you're a good God, uh, that your goodness knows no bounds. We thank you that when you speak, you speak powerfully. We thank you for uh, your word and your voice. We thank you for your spirit who applies it to our lives. Father, we ask now as we spend time thinking of you and what you have revealed about yourself that we will be led to give you the glory that you deserve, uh, that our, our hearts and minds would be changed to love you more uh, and to live lives that are more and more the reflection of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, in the ruins of uh, Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire, uh, there are signs to help visitors capture life as it was back when the abbey was a functioning monastery. 
uh, at the chapter house, which is kind of like their, their chapel, uh, the guide reads, Hear the monks gathered every Sunday to hear a sermon from the abbot, except on Trinity Sunday, owing to the difficulty of the subject. You know, the, the concept, the idea of God as Trinity is fairly intimidating and it actually embarrasses many people, even people who, who love God. And maybe that's you tonight. Uh, perhaps if you had bothered to read last week's notice sheet and discover we're about to go to the Trinity or if you'd, you'd midweek checked online and seen what we were doing, you might have just joined those monks at Fountains Abbey and just taken the night off. I want to say it's great that you didn't uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, one particular is that what we're discussing tonight is not a side issue and it is not something that's too hard basket and therefore we should ignore it. Uh, Trinity is the distinctive Christian doctrine. Why? Because it goes to the essence of God himself. Uh, the 39 articles, if, you, if you're not aware of them, they're um, the basis of belief for, for our church, our denomination, the Anglican Church. Uh, they don't shy away from God as Trinity. They actually open with this statement from Article 1. Uh, Article 1 of 39, of faith in the Holy Trinity. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts or passions, of infinite power and wisdom and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. Okay, as you capture that, um, a, a unity of Godhead, three persons, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. Yeah, r- rather than, uh, I suppose, sneaking the idea of the Trinity, you know, kind of in the back half of the articles where no one would actually get up to and so you kind of hide it away or, or rather than, you know, perhaps as you've been tempted to like I have, uh, rather than just kind of ignoring the idea of the Trinity altogether, uh, you know, when was the last time you were chatting to your friends and talked about God being Father, Son and Spirit? You know, Rather than do that, it sees that the Trinity is the starting point of all truth. Uh, There's another historical summary uh, called the Athanasian Creed. Uh, It's a creed that uh, Anglican churches were were called and used to have said once a month. It states that if you don't firmly and faithfully believe in the triune God, well, you can't be saved. The doctrine of the Trinity is essential. But I want to say it's even better than that. It's not just essential, it's not just a necessary uncomfortableness, it's actually fantastic. It's a great truth because it expands our wonder of God. You know, the more we look at the essential God, God in himself, it humbles us and elevates him. And it transforms the way that you and I understand ourselves as people made in his image. Uh, The philosopher Immanuel Kant uh, said, absolutely nothing can be acquired for practical life from the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's always risky to uh, disagree with people who are obviously much smarter than you, but I'm about to do that. Uh, He's obviously much smarter than me, but he's way off. Uh, The Trinity is not information for an ivory tower, for theologians and philosophers to kind of keep to themselves. It is essential to your daily life. So if you, in any way, think that relationships matter, then the Trinity is where it's at. You know, if... If relating to God matters to you, then I want you to be excited because exploring the Trinity is exploring God himself. It's exploring ultimate reality. If if relating to other people matters to you, and I hope it does, uh, then be excited because what God does is he sets up the framework for perfect relationships. 
Over the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at the, the particularities of each, each uh, person of the Godhead. We're going to be looking at the, the distinctives of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But tonight we glimpse God in himself. We look at the perfect relationship. Uh, how are we going to do it? First of all, we're going to, going to look at the foundation of the Trinity, that is, who's God? Uh, and then a bit about how he works, you know, his function, uh, before we get on to think about the implications for us. So first, uh, who's God? Those two readings that Beck read for us are the foundation facts. Uh, There is one God, the Son, the Holy Spirit and the Father. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, It's stated on the one hand to to go against those who believe in in, lots of gods, Hinduism today. Uh, on the other hand, it speaks against the, the atheists and agnostics of, of our world. You know, many Australians and Westerners, you know, like those in the UK who take out signs on the sides of buses that say, you know, there is no God, stop worrying. It's against those kind of people. There is one God, but he is not simple and he is not simplistic. So our other reading from Matthew 28, uh, Jesus, just before he goes and ascends to be at the Father's side, um, he says this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What I want us to capture uh, just in that verse there is is the use of a singular for for name. Uh, Jesus doesn't command, go and baptise in the names of Father, Son and Spirit, as though there were three separate entities. And he doesn't speak of a single person with three different roles in the way that you could talk about me or I could talk about myself as being um, both a a son and a brother and a father. Now he talks about one person. So there's the inclusion of, here we go, uh, grammar, the definite article. Uh, If you're not familiar with that, it's the word the. The word the is in there. Before each person, the father, the son, the Holy Spirit. Um, Each person matters. God is a complex unity with distinction. And this is not something that, you know, kind of the New Testament writers made up or came up with. It's not a New Testament invention. The opening, Bible, the opening lines of the Bible are the seed of it. Uh, we've just done a series on Genesis. If you can remember about, I don't know, 10, 11, maybe more weeks ago, uh, we, uh, it probably is more, uh, we looked at Genesis 1. Genesis 1's opening lines. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Even prior to creation, there is the unity of of God and the distinction of his persons. Later in that chapter, if you remember Genesis 1.26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. what What is kind of present but underneath the surface there in the Old Testament is kind of bubbling up. It's expounded and elaborated in the New Testament. One God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The obvious question is, you know, how does that work then? How does that function? Uh, how does, what does it mean to say that God is three and one? And people have done lots of attempts to try and understand that and uh, lots of illustrations to try and grasp it. Um, I suspect they all end up leading into error, either by emphasising the kind of oneness or the distinction. 
Uh, so people have done the shamrock and people have done uh, water. You know, water can be a form of ice and water or steam uh, to try and illustrate the Trinity. I think the trouble with the water one is that, that ice isn't all those things at once. Um, though somebody who perhaps understands physics better than me has suggested that's possible. Don't get too distracted. Something about nought degrees, vapour. It, it lost me. My, my general thinking is that it wasn't helpful, that you, you notice one, then the other, then the other. Uh, what's the problem with that? If you go down that kind of line, you end up with there's a God behind it who puts on masks. And, and so at one moment he's being a father and then he jumps over here and he's being a son and then he's being a spirit. Problem with that, I can never really know the true God because he's always putting masks and I can't know the God who's behind, who's pretending to be all these different masks. Uh, you know, at the other end, of course, you can kind of swing off into tritheism, that they're three separate gods if you, if you push the distinction too hard. Uh, and that is the blasphemy which you know, Muslims would accuse us of. You're still wondering how it work. <laughs> They're just the illustrations that don't capture it. You know, how do we make sense of God functioning trinitarianly? And my apologies, I'm going to throw in some strange words uh, tonight. Keep with me. Uh, well, in part, I want you to step aside for a moment and uh, question the way you think about existence, you know, what it is to simply be. Because the way we often think about what it is to be leads us to ask the wrong questions. So it's, it's said that there are, there are only three fundamental root paradigms in human society that explain what is essential, that explain what it is to be something. So there's the, the atomic, the oceanic and the spider's web. Okay, let me explain each of those briefly. Um, the atomic seeks to explain everything by its smallest part, that you really understand something if you just keep breaking it down smaller and smaller and smaller until you get to the smallest bit, you know, the, the atomic or the subatomic particles. It's Western thinking. It's the way the most of us think and are trained to think, that we, we assume we will understand something better if we just get it down to the smallest part because that's its essence. And so when talking about people, society is just a, a, you know, a collection of individual human beings, uh, or if you remember Margaret Thatcher, the former, former British PM, uh, as she put it, there is no such thing as society. At the other end of the extreme is the oceanic, okay, that sees ultimate reality is when everything flows into. So all rivers run into the one ocean. That the essence of reality is when things become together and the distinctions are lost and things are united. It's, it's an Eastern way of thinking. It's Hinduism's goal of moksha. It's escaping that cycle of life and death to become one. And, you know, it's the New Age movement. Third paradigm uh, is the spider's web, where nothing is understood except in relation to other things that the essence of what it is to be is about individual parts connecting with each other. Um, people tell me that this is typified in African thinking. Um, I don't know enough Africans. Edward's here, which is super. Um, maybe he can correct me later on. Uh, but apparently, you know, Africans will introduce themselves much more with a kind of their whole family line and, and tribal lineage where they're still an individual, but they're tied and understood in terms of all their connections. You know, drawing it back to God, you know, the, the essence of being, uh, of course, when we're talking about God, is, is much more a dynamic and interconnected thing. It's not this static one or the static many, these separated bits or the shoved together bits. You know, oneness, the, the, the essence of being, what it is to exist, 
is not about radical separation of small parts. It's not the atomic. And it's not either the simplistic, you know, simplistic, indistinguishable mash, mash of, of the oceanic. It's a spider's web of those individual parts inseparably interconnected. The essence of what it is to be is dynamic and relational. It's not static. So, so we, we miss the forest for the trees if we're atomic. We, we miss the trees for the forest if we're oceanic. The, the essence of the forest is the relationship one tree to another. I'm trying to draw it back to help us understand how God works. Okay? God's essential being is about interconnectedness. One God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, best understood as that, that spider's web. You know, they are beings in perfect and permanent relationship. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to grasp everything of God comprehensively. Um, he still is, always will be unique and bigger than our minds, greater than all of us. But, but some, some theologians have tried to explain how the, the three persons of the Trinity work and are related to one another as, as a mutual indwelling. What does that mean? They live in each other. That they're so they're bonded to each other in a really unique way. That they 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 love each other totally so much that they they become within one another. So John fourteen picks up that. Uh, John fourteen ten. Don't you believe that I am? This is Jesus speaking, by the way. Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words you say, sorry, the words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Or at least believe in the evidence of the miracles themselves. The Father exists in the Son and the Son in the Father and both of them in the Spirit, uh, just as the Spirit exists both in the Father and the Son. It's it's by virtue of their eternal love that they live in, in one another to such an extent, they dwell in one another to such an extent that they become one. They are united in that way. It's this this process of pure and perfect empathy. God is three persons relating so perfectly, so intimately that they are one. God is unity with distinction. You know, the, the ultimate reality is personal relationship. And so to, to look at the three persons in isolation is to misunderstand their essence. And to look at them without distinction does the same thing. So what we need to do is what a guy back in the 4th century, a guy called Gregory of Nazianzus, suggested. He said, no sooner do I conceive the one than I'm illuminated by the splendour of the three, and no sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back to the one. God, when you get there, to see him in himself is perfect relationship. What's it mean for us? What's it mean for your daily life? Four implications uh, for you if you are one of these people made in the image of God. First one, love and worship God alone. Remember Deuteronomy 6, it starts, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, love the Lord your God. There's a logical connection that when you know that the Lord is the one God, it leads to a particular action. That is, you've got to love him with everything you've got, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. God's oneness, the fact that there is only one God, means you've got to act on that. You've got to exclusively love and trust and worship him. 
Why? Well, well, he exerts power over everything. No one else does. He is the source of life and, and all creation heads to the destiny that he has determined. Uh, so at points, because of sin, the world seems chaotic and it seems confused. Uh, but the unity of God and his power and purposes says there's actually an end to which it's heading because there is one God and he holds it all together. Whether or not people acknowledge him, he still rules. But you who know him, you need to answer, is it God alone that you worship? Is it God alone that you place your trust in? That when he asks hard things, you do them? Is it God alone that you serve? Uh, you know, is God the one whom you adore? Because nothing and no one else has a right to that position and your answer to that question will help you see whether you really love him. Second implication is that God is personal and he invites us to share his relationship. And God is, God's not just some abstract philosophical concept. He's not a, you know, a kind of necessary solution to scientific problems. He's not a God of the gaps. Uh, God in himself is pure, perfect relationship. And, and he has a character and that character shapes every one of his interactions. And the most remarkable thing about God is that he has a perfect relationship that he shares with himself, Father, Son, Spirit, and yet he invites other people to join it. You know, so as the Son enters the world and he dies, in a way is reopened up to relate to God. As the Spirit is placed in each one of his people, we are connected to God. We're going to talk more about that in coming weeks. Um, but God has made us capable of relating to him. You know, he's made us able to communicate with him and one another. Um, human language, it's, it's the vehicle of our relationships. You can't have a relationship without speaking to one another. Like, it can actually convey truth about God in a meaningful way. God is not mysterious in that sense. He has spoken to us clearly. Uh, and what we say about God is true and meaningful. And we don't just speak about kind of analogies about God. This is what God might be like. This is what God is like. God has revealed himself to us and he speaks to us in his word and we can know him personally and we can respond to him personally in words, in prayer, back to him. We can speak to God um, as uh, Romans puts it, Abba, Father. Uh, Abba there is an Aramaic term, you know, an affectionate term to say daddy, even adults apparently used it. It's not the Swedish supergroup. Uh, you know, we who are in Christ can actually communicate intimately with the personal God. Uh, someone reflected on the privilege of relating to God this way and said, I've only ever been apart from my family for Christmas once, about a decade ago. However, a friend's family invited me to their table and when I arrived, I was greeted with conviv conviviality, given presents and included in the rituals and the banter of the family. My fears of loneliness were soon dispelled. It was an overwhelming and happy day. Could this be an inkling of what Christians experience trinitarianly in their prayers? Yeah, I think he's right. I think he's got it. That we are welcomed into God's conversation. We join in on the kind of Christmas party with God and he makes us feel welcome. You know, out of sheer love and sheer mercy, uh, the Father, the Son and Spirit say, come and join you know, it's not like the, you know, the characters in the sitcom Friends who, if you remember the show, six key figures who just kind of had a wall around them that no one else could ever penetrate because they didn't really want any other friends. They just liked each other. 
No, no, God is the opposite. He had the perfect relationship that says, no, no, come and join me. Come and join me. Third implication for your daily life, um, relationships are the ultimate reality. Uh, An Australian theologian, a guy called Broughton Knox, put it this way. The subject of theology is not God, but God in his relationships. The essence of God is eternal relationship. Uh, And that's a a message you you and I need to hear. Our society needs desperately to hear. uh, Lisa Pryor wrote a book last year um, called The Pinstriped Prison, subtitled How Overachievers Get Trapped in Corporate Jobs They Hate. Uh, She recounts this story. Uh, Nathan Laird enjoyed his work and liked his colleagues, but left his firm because he hated uh, his work dictated by billable hours. To quote him, timesheets, that's the thing that sucks your soul. Your whole day is constructed like that. You're talking to a friend on the phone and you're thinking, that's one billable unit gone. And I know there are people who work like that and think like that and feel that. And even if you're not in that kind of work, you're conditioned to think that the ultimate reality is output. Um, But no, 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 the the triune God points us that the essential... The essential nature of reality is relationships. Now, don't mishear me. Um, I'm not saying output is a bad thing. I don't want you to turn up at work tomorrow and spend you know, 10 hours by the water cooler saying, <laughs> I've been godly today. This is what the sermon told me last night. No, no, no. Um, output still matters. God's a worker. Everything that exists, he made. Okay? But he makes it to serve relationships. Output is to serve the object of establishing and maintaining and deepening personal relationships with God and with others. You you and I are made in the image of God. And so that means relationships are central to what it is to be human. As one humanity but made male and female, we reflect in an imperfect kind of way uh, the unity with distinction that God has. The the essence of being human is individuals in relationship. Uh, And so an old lecturer of mine put forward a, a theory of the mutual love ethic to guide every action you should do. You know, that is, it you know, carves through the individualist on one side or the collectivist kind of debate of understanding people. He says the basic unit of, of society is, is not the individual, not the state, but individuals in relationship. What's that mean? It means you are not free to withdraw from relationships and be a hermit. Because that would be denying what it is to be a person. Uh, you are called to engage meaningfully with other people. Uh, One of the top upsides of that, um, going out for a coffee with a friend is a right and good expression of just being a human in God's image. Uh, Coffee's not your thing, take another drink. But it's the relationship, isn't it? That's $3 well spent. Uh, And how much more in God's church? In 1 Corinthians 12, have a read of it later on, Paul illustrates that kind of unity with distinction um, of, of a church, of the congregation with Trinitarian language. And so as with the Trinity, um, there is both a a difference of role and yet there's a oneness. So you look around the room here and you go, yes, we're not all the same. We are quite different and yet we've got the same spirit that pulls us together, makes us, you and me, the body of Christ together. And so it means that you you can't sever relationships with people here without damaging yourself and damaging the other people. You're not free to just withdraw that way. You know, we are interdependent the way God has made us as a church. 
And so love, you know, that, that, that's what he goes on to talk about in 1 Corinthians 13, that, that never-failing, humble, forgiving love, that's the key. And so that's the fourth and final implication. All relationships should imitate the model of God himself. Now, to say that relationships are the ultimate reality doesn't justify every type of relationship. You know, an abusive friendship uh, isn't right simply because it's a type of relationship. Our relationships have to actually reflect God's. Uh, and therefore, true personal relationship is completely other person-centred. Massively challenging. But it's just the way that God himself relates. So John uh, 3.35, the father loves the son, placed everything in his hands. Um, John 5.20, for the father loves the son, shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. Uh, and again, Jesus says in John 5.30, um, I don't expect you looking these up, by the way. John 5.30, Jesus says, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek, this is the key bit, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. You know, our actions have to mirror God's. We are called, uh, scarily enough, to be entirely other person-centred. Not just wishing them well, but acting in their interests. And so we've got to communicate with the kind of clarity that God does. You know, there's no room for us to be kind of stonewalling each other or huffiness or tantrums in your relationship and you know let's be honest it's not just two-year-olds that do tantrums and huffiness in relationships we actually need to be fair with other people we need to treat them rightly you know it doesn't mean we treat everyone the same we need to recognize the kind of relationship we have with people you know but but they have to be marked don't they with kind of costly faithfulness our relationships you know we, we need to be the kind of people who keep our word even when it hurts just like god does you know, we, need to, we need to respect the order and difference among us. So you know, men to women need to relate differently. Older to younger need to relate differently. You know, we need to recognise those who put in authority, you know, just as the Godhead does. Uh, the list could, could go on. Point is, relationships are the ultimate reality, but you've got to keep going back and look at how God does it if you're going to do it properly. Now, God invites in the stranger to share his relationship and uh, it's it's been criticized uh, of our church that we lack in that area that we are not good at loving and welcoming those who are different and before you kind of knee jerk and go yeah but what about no just consider the question how many people are you loving at church who you wouldn't normally befriend you know, so you, you're going to meet people at church who, had you met them uh, at the pub um, or at the yacht club, you would have been their friend anyway because you've got the same interests and you're at the same stage of life. Um, I want to say that's super. Keep loving those people. That's terrific. But that's not the way God welcomes in and invites new people in. You know, we need to love the person who's different. The marrieds have to invite single people into their life. The corporates have to socialise with the unemployed. Uh, even simple things, I know of a connect group that um, at least they've discussed uh, the, the idea of at supper they stand in an open circle so that other people can keep joining them. Uh, yeah, or simple things like going up and, and finding that person alone uh, and inviting them in at church. All to help us relate like God. Uh, the, the monks uh, back there at Fountains Abbey, and they took a morning off when it was Trinity Sunday because uh, they thought the subject was just too hard. And I want to say I feel sorry for them 
Because if you look at the Trinity, you see ultimate reality and you see the perfect relationship. For our God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit is one and we are to love him with everything we have. Let's pray that we might do that. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for and praise you for your perfection in your relationship as Father and Son and Spirit. We praise you for the way that uh, not only do you love uh, within yourself perfectly and other person-centeredly, but you open it up to invite people like us in. Father, we ask that we would be people who delight in the prospect of relating to you, that we would love you with everything we have and that we would relate in the way that you relate and that this might all be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.